This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to South China Sea Currents, our weekly podcast on what's happening in the South China Sea. I'm joined as ever by our South China Sea reporter, Drake Long, to talk about what he's been focusing on this week. His work with Radio Free Asia and Banana News. How are you doing, Drake? Great, as always. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thank you very much. So, this week, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo embarked on a five-nation tour of Asia, which seemed to have the express purpose of getting the host governments to close ranks against China. Notwithstanding growing unease in the region about China's military and economic power, few, if any, were willing to speak out, at least publicly, against Beijing. So has American diplomacy missed the mark? Maybe, Drake, you can set the scene for us. Where did the Secretary of State visit? And in, in a nutshell, what did, he, what did he achieve on those stops? Well, it was quite the whirlwind tour. So October 25th to October 30th, he visited India, the Maldives, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and then he's in Vietnam as of Friday. And I believe he's visiting Japan afterwards. That's unrelated. In India, there was actually quite a bit of a plum. Uh, they signed a satellite data sharing agreement between the U.S. and India, which is mostly related to the line of actual control conflict, which is a whole other issue. Um, but it's it's a sign of deepening security cooperation. That's a conflict with uh, between China and India, right? Yes, on their land border. But yeah, so there's been some uh, heightened security cooperation on that front, which uh, most people expected. In the Maldives, Pompeo actually announced the opening of a completely new U.S. embassy on the islands, which was quite unexpected. I think it's a sign that they're really stepping up their sort of commitment to that island. And I mean, it's it's definitely something that's been off the U.S. radar for a while. Right. In, in, the, in the Indian Ocean, right? Maldives. Yes. Yep. Just south of India. Uh, in Sri Lanka, also in the Indian Ocean. There was a little less public announcement of any particularly new projects, but they talked about stepping up cooperation as per usual. Uh, sort of the same thing in Indonesia. No major accord struck. Um, some discussion on maritime security issues. The U.S. is apparently concerned about that, as Indonesia is one of the neighbors of the Malacca Strait, which about a third of the world's trade runs through. And then in Vietnam, we've seen a host of statements about deepening bilateral security cooperation, about deepening investment between the two countries. He met with three different parts of the Vietnamese government that deal with portfolios like the South China Sea and the Mekong and the economy. So quite a bit to discuss, at least with his Vietnamese counterparts. Sri Lanka and Indonesia, it, it didn't seem to be quite the same way. All right. Well, he seemed to cram a lot into a week. And as I mentioned at the top, there was a common theme to his trip. Yes, it was China. The rhetoric at each of his stops was extremely focused on bringing up the activities of China and the China Communist Party, talking about its aggressive behavior on the line of actual control, the land border with India, its aggressive uh, debt diplomacy, he calls it, with countries like the Maldives, uh, calling out China's infrastructure projects, calling out China for its activity in the South China Sea. The basic gist of each of these stops is he's saying, you know, don't work with the Chinese party, don't work with the Chinese Communist Party. Beijing is tricking you with these infrastructure deals that don't go anywhere. They are seeking expanding into the Indian Ocean. They're seeking dominance in the South China Sea. Um, the U.S. is ready to work with any free and open democracies that would like to work with us in the Indo-Pacific. So that was okay. the main theme. 
All right, so let's listen to a little bit of that kind of rhetoric in his own words from when he had a press conference during his stop in Sri Lanka. Indeed, a strong, sovereign Sri Lanka is a powerful and strategic partner for the United States on the world stage. It can be a beacon for a free and open Indo-Pacific. Look, that's quite a con contrast to what China seeks. Uh, we, we see from bad deals, violations of sovereignty and lawlessness on land and sea that the Chinese Communist Party is a predator. And the United States comes in a different way. We come as a friend and as a partner. So, Secretary Pompeo says China's a predator. Um, how do you think this kind of rhetoric went down with the governments along the way on this trip? Well, I think with a country like India, that may have gone over a little bit better. Uh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, it clearly did not go so well, actually. Uh, so when Pompeo talks about China being a predator, he's talking about a lot of different things. But with Sri Lanka in particular, he's talking about China's attitude towards debt. The idea being that Chinese companies will build harbor projects or infrastructure projects in a country like Sri Lanka, but then sink them in so much debt that they become basically client states of China. Sri Lanka did not respond too well uh, to that sort of insinuation. The president of the country, Gotabaya Rayapaksa, said very succinctly right after his meeting with Pompeo, Sri Lanka has no interest in getting entangled between two power blocks, which is a very clear reference to the U.S. trying to make it choose a side between China and the U.S. So it definitely didn't go over too well in Sri Lanka. In Indonesia, Pompeo touched on a number of things. The South China Sea, he talked about the ongoing atrocities in Xinjiang with the Uyghur population in China. And the Indonesian foreign minister essentially demurred from any of the same heated rhetoric and basically didn't mention China by name, whereas Pompeo named China quite a bit. So in both of those countries, Sri Lanka and Indonesia in particular, there was not a super enthused response to Pompeo's rhetoric. Which I guess would kind of be expected because they're both nations with like a non-aligned tradition in their foreign policy. So I don't think there's much surprise there, is there? No, not necessarily. I think that Pompeo was trying to see if he could move the needle a little bit, but I think this was, if anything, an indication that Sri Lanka and Indonesia are, are pretty steadfast in their whole non-aligned attitude. Indonesia in particular is not necessarily going to bite at that, even with tensions in the South China Sea. And Sri Lanka has a history of not really taking sides in these sorts of struggles. Okay, so talk a little bit about Vietnam, where Pompeo has been today, Friday, as we're recording this. Yeah, so the trip to Vietnam was actually announced at the last second on Wednesday. It's not clear why it was such a, a impromptu kind of notice, but Pompeo landed in Vietnam on Friday. He talked with the Prime Minister, Nguyen Xuan Phuc. He talked with the Foreign Minister, Phan Binh Minh. And he talked with the head of the Ministry of Public Security, To Lam. So with the Foreign Minister... They discussed a whole range of issues. They discussed things like disaster assistance because of the terrible flooding that's going on in central Vietnam, which is an after effect of the typhoon that we saw this week. He talked about the South China Sea with the Minister of Public Security, because that's technically his portfolio, talking about mutual concerns about China's behavior there, although Vietnam was very careful not to name China specifically. And with the foreign minister, they discussed trade. They discussed bilateral investment between the U.S. and Vietnam. So the general impression is that after the Indo-Pacific Business Forum on Wednesday, the U.S. really wanted to make a trip to Vietnam, but maybe they had to hammer out the arrangements kind of last minute to make it happen. And at the top of the agenda was China's behavior in the Mekong River on the South China Sea. But then above those two things 
would be Vietnam and the U.S. They have a current bit of a trade tension, a testy discussion, as a professor at the University of New South Wales, Carl Thayer, told me in an interview. The U.S. and Vietnam are currently butting heads over currency manipulation charges that the U.S. trade representative leveled at the Vietnamese government. And so now there seems to be some type of discussion to try to work past that, which I'm sure this visit was meant to address. Okay, so the trade tensions are set back in the in the relationship and sort of take the focus a little bit off the security relationship, which we're kind of focusing more generally in, in our coverage. I noticed that Pompeo tweeted after he met with the public security minister that uh, US-Vietnam security relations were being elevated. Well, what do you make of that? So Le Hong Hip, who is a fellow at the IC's Institute in Singapore, told me this in a very, very succinct way. He says, if you look at Vietnam, if you look at the US, there are very few countries that have such a clear common strategic interest, and that is the South China Sea. Vietnam is a claimant in the South China Sea. It directly neighbors China. It is in a very tough situation with China's kind of growing naval presence out there. And we spot Chinese Coast Guard ships in Vietnamese waters pretty often. At the same time, the U.S. is greatly concerned about China's expansionism in the South China Sea. So the two countries have a very clear interest. Uh, it's a security problem in the South China Sea. And if they work together, there's very clear gains for both sides. So elevating that security relationship could take the place of any number of things. The U.S. has already helped out Vietnam with some maritime security issues, such as lending it Coast Guard cutters, selling them some secondhand equipment, setting up a new training facility for uh, illegal fishing enforcement in southern Vietnam. And some of the analysts I talked to, Le Hong Hip, uh, Carl Thayer, suggested that U.S. operating some maritime patrol aircraft out of Vietnamese territory is actually not out of the picture either. I mean, that, that could be possible in the future. So the U.S. and Vietnam seem to be working together very, very closely on these issues because they have a common sort of threat from China. And for Vietnam, it's a little bit more existential and a little bit closer than for the U.S. And for that reason, both sides have a huge incentive to kind of meet and talk about these things. Okay. I mean, there's obviously a huge amount of historical baggage between the U.S. and Vietnam. I mean, they normalized ties 25 years ago, but they had this, you know, epic struggle during the Vietnam War. And it seems kind of unlikely to me anyway that the U.S. could be allowed to fly military planes out of Vietnam. But I mean, what's your take on that? So, I mean, that was my attitude too. But after thinking about it a little bit further, the main reason... I would think, or anybody would think that that's impossible, is because Vietnam has it written in its constitution, a very clear policy called the three no's. It says no foreign military alliances, no foreign military can be on Vietnamese soil. And the third no escapes me, but I think it means simply no aligning with one country against another country. So all of those no's kind of preclude any ability to let the U.S. operate anything from Vietnamese territory. But, and I did not realize this until Le Hong Hip brought it up to me, Vietnam actually updated this policy recently to have a so-called one depend, which is simply, if the situation calls for it, we might revisit the three no's, which is kind of a, a catch-all sort of change. But it's basically saying that if the situation in the South China Sea does not improve, if China continues being aggressive and it keeps expanding into what Vietnam considers its own waters, then Vietnam does think that there's you know, a pretty good reason to reevaluate the three no's and work with the U.S. on something. So this is a case where, you know, it sounds rather outlandish, but maybe in 
five years time, 10 years time, we might actually see some maritime patrol aircraft take off from Vietnamese territory. Having said that, you know, that's who knows what will be the trigger for that or if something else will get in the way. So it's just something provocative to think about. Right. So given that Mike Pompeo has had this five nation tour or it'll be six nations if he's going to Japan as well. I mean, if we're going to give him a scorecard for his efforts to get countries to rally round and, and push back against China, give him his marks out of 10. Out of 10? How about I give him out of one, two, three, four, five, because he visited five <laughs> countries. I'll, I'll, give, I'll give him this. I'll give him a two out of five. And let me qualify that. I'll give him a two because, in my opinion, the meeting with India was pretty successful. I mean, that's, that's what people anticipated. They signed a lot of good agreements there. Uh, with Vietnam... They seem to have papered over a number of differences. They talked about Vietnam buying natural gas. And they talked about the U.S. investing in Vietnam's energy sector. But with Sri Lanka and Indonesia, I don't think you can really call those huge successes. Uh, they were pretty frigid to Pompeo's overtures. In the Maldives, that could be considered a win. But this is something that Greg Poling, a uh, Southeast Asia fellow over at the Center for Strategic International Studies, pointed out on his Twitter account, actually, the U.S. will be opening a new embassy in the Maldives, but everybody who works at that embassy will have to live in Chinese-built housing. They will have to drive Chinese-built roads to the embassy. They will cross Chinese-built bridges to their work, and they'll be working in a country whose infrastructure is just overwhelmingly Chinese, including the energy sector. So is it is it really a win? It's kind of hard to tell. I'd, I'd probably call that more of like a draw. But I mean, if it's, it's, if it's a scorecard out of five, I would not necessarily give that one uh, to Pompeo at this time. So I would say two out of five. Other people might argue three out of five. But that's just my pessimistic opinion. Well, I think that seems a, a fair and balanced uh, assessment. So you're listening to South China Sea Currents. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, Drake, was your story earlier this week looking in extreme detail, in fact, into China's persistent presence around disputed features in the South China Sea and in the EZs of other claimant nations. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So I think that when we talk about the South China Sea, there's a tendency to only really write and discuss breaking news stories like when a Coast Guard ship, a Chinese Coast Guard ship, first intrudes into some country's territory. It's a big deal because people are like, oh my gosh, this ship just showed up. Um, how long are they going to be here? This, is, this can't stand. And I think that it was important to kind of highlight that past those headlines, these ships never leave. So we've actually been tracking Chinese Coast Guard ships for months on end inside of the EEZ of Vietnam or inside the EEZ of the Philippines. They've never left. They've never gone away. We just simply don't you know, we don't report on it every single week because it would get a little bit repetitive over time. I just thought it would be a good chance to write a primer to show people just how enduring this presence is. I mean, if you look at the Vanguard Bank, China has had a Coast Guard ship there for months since July. Uh, they rotate ships out. We've seen ships go to their artificial islands, their bases at Fiery Cross Reef to refuel and then go straight back to the disputed feature. In effect, there's not a single day that goes by without China having a presence at that feature at Vanguard Bank. And so just so for those who are not familiar, Vanguard sure. Bank is a, a feature that is also claimed by Vietnam. It's claimed by Vietnam. It also sits within Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. So it's, it's 200 nautical miles off Vietnam's territory. It's technically Vietnamese waters. So to have Coast Guard ships there in particular is very provocative. And it's some other areas like Scarborough Shoal and Second Thomas Shoal, which are 
Philippine claim features off the Philippine coast, those are also technically within Philippine waters. It's very controversial for China to have such an enduring presence there. And when I say enduring, I mean enduring. They rotate ships out. They never leave. The names of the ship might change, but there's always someone there at the very, very least, despite the fact that it doesn't really get written up in the news all that often. So how long have they been at Scarborough Shoal and, and Second Thomas Shoal, the Philippine claim features? Well, uh, I worked on the timeline and I established that China has had a presence in Philippine waters since about May. That's uh, quite a while. They've never gone away. Scarborough Shoal in particular, you've had multiple ships show up there. Maybe one will leave, go refuel. And then when it get back, another one will leave, go refuel, then get back. Stuff like that. Second Thomas Shoal, it's been pretty much unending. And that's partly explained by the fact that China has a massive military base called Mischief Reef close by to the point where they can constantly rotate ships in and out. And it's really not any sort of like, there's no gas shortage, there's no personnel shortage or anything like that. So uh, in the Philippine claim features since May, in Vanguard Bank since July, and then in this other area in the center of the South China Sea, that's not in anybody's waters technically, called the Union Banks. I mean, we've been tracking ships there since March. I mean, do you think that this is a new normal for China? I mean, how long have they been maintaining such an enduring presence of these disputed features? Do you think it was the same last year or has it intensified? In my short time looking at this, I would say it has intensified in a, in a couple of different ways. For one, there are more maritime militia ships. These are fishing boats that are just simply, they're, they're part of the armed forces. Uh, they disguise themselves within fishing fleets. Then they assert China's claims to different territories. China has built new maritime militia ships called the Yuetaiyu, uh, which I, I've been watching in the Union Banks for the first time. And they've just never left. They're there constantly. You have more ships, period, flooding the kind of area. The Coast Guard ships are getting more aggressive. They are more easily able to refuel and resupply because a lot of neighboring countries have simply given up on trying to deter them. It's too costly, and they're just so much bigger than anything that their local navies can kind of uh, break out. But there's no point. So in the short time I've looked at this, I would say it's gotten a little bit more unprecedented. It's gotten a little bit more persistent. It's gotten a little bit more aggressive. We're finding more and more ships within other countries' waters, not just around features that are so disputed that no one can really claim them one way or the other, but more clearly within that 200 nautical mile limit off a country's shores. So that's my take. Okay, well, I thought that was a great bit of reporting on that story. You put a lot of work into it. It's very data kind of or information heavy, but it's well worth a, a read. If you go to the rfa.org or bananews.org website, where you can see all of Drake's previous articles. Also, you can catch up on our previous podcasts, or otherwise you can go to Spotify and iTunes and search for South China Sea Currents. If you've got any questions or feedback, please email us on South China Sea, that's all one word, at rfa.org, or follow Drake on Twitter. His handle is DRM underscore long. I'm Matt Pennington with Drake Long, the South China Sea reporter for Radio Free Asia and Banana News. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.